this is a news laundry podcast and you're listening to sessions from the media rumble 2018 rupa kudwa is the managing director of omedia india and partner in the omedia network rupa for those of us in the audience who don't know what omedia is and have never heard of pr omedia could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do in india great thanks ration good morning everyone uh omedia network is an investment firm funded by the philanthropic capital of Pierre Omidyar, who is the founder of eBay and his wife, Pam. What we do is we support innovative entrepreneurs uh, who are early stage and often leverage technology to achieve social impact at scale. We are indifferent to the fact that the entrepreneur is a for-profit entrepreneur or a non-profit entrepreneur. So if you're a non-profit entrepreneur, we will give you a grant. If you're a for-profit entrepreneur, we will invest in equity. Uh, think of us on the for-profit side as VC-like, and think of us as uh, on the grant-making side as foundation-like. But what we pride ourselves in is that we have gone beyond the normal definitions of what constitute impact population and what constitutes impact sectors. Uh, so we will, for example, not just focus our energies on the two to four dollars a day population that most impact investors focus on. We also focus one level higher on, on middle class, on the lower, lower middle class and lower income populations. And we also focus on areas beyond the traditional health, education, et cetera, to look at areas like uh, technology, governance, and citizen engagement, things like independent media, property rights, which are pretty non-traditional, either both for a foundation or for an impact investor. And we can get into the whys of that uh, further into the conversation. But that, in a nutshell, is who we are. We have deployed about a billion dollars of capital globally and about $250 million here in India. So the obvious question that your answer behooves is on the one hand, you are a venture capitalist like many of the venture capitalists, and many entrepreneurs secretly whisper that venture capital is actually vulture capital because you're investing, waiting to sell. On the other hand, you also give grant money, which means you're dolphin capital. You are friendly and you're chatty. And how do you manage this seeming uh, dichotomy, this seeming schizophrenia of being Nice on one hand and being ruthless on the other hand at the same time, often within the same day, I imagine. So we actually don't think of it as a contradiction or a dichotomy. And the reason we don't is because for us, the first lens is always social impact. So that's our first screen. We are agnostic to how you're reaching that outcome. And the underlying thesis is that if you look at the problems that we are trying to solve, these are intractable intractable tractable problems which have been around for decades if not centuries and we have to therefore be open to the fact that if you're looking to disrupt these spaces like healthcare education property rights for example that disruption can come from innovative entrepreneurs from anywhere they could be for profit they could be non profit and so why should you deny yourself the opportunity to have that impact and therefore we say uh, you know, 
problems first and solutions tools later. So what's the problem that the entrepreneur is trying to solve? And if you are a nonprofit, we will give you the grant, and a for-profit, we will give you uh, equity. Once you cross that impact screen, however, and make it past that, and make it past the other parameters of evaluation, on the for-profit side, we will look at it just like any other investor would look at it. What's your business model? What's the sustainability? What's the team? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. That's where the ruthlessness kicks in. Just a little bit. Just a tad. Uh, Omidyar Network uh, engages and invests in a lot of non-obvious spaces. Citizen engagement being a, a big, a big part of what you do. Many organizations around the world are a little loath to engage with governments, a little loath to confront or what seemingly confront governments. Why is Omidia Network different from the other organizations, uh, the Gates Foundation, for instance? So I think it comes out of our fundamental belief in two things. One is the importance of empowering the individual. And the second is creating responsive institutions. And we believe that for both individual empowerment and responsive institutions are really important to have open, fair, inclusive, and vibrant societies. And therefore, how citizens engage with government, how citizens engage with each other, and entities and organizations like independent media play a vital role in creating the basic foundations for societies to be open, to be fair, to be inclusive, and to be vibrant, which is why this is a space that we actively look at. In terms of organizational DNA, uh, how does eBay, the work at eBay and e-commerce inform your current practice? And is e-commerce any part of this matrix at all that Omidia does? So our Pierre was the founder of eBay and in a very central way, his experience at eBay has been core to shaping the way Omidia Network has evolved. Because what he saw, actually when Omidia Networks first started, it started like a traditional foundation. And then it was actually quite dissatisfying because the foundation itself, the structure itself, was quite restrictive. And Pierre, while, while growing eBay, had seen the transformative power that eBay had in the lives of millions of people all over the world. And from there came the fundamental belief in the power of business, if done well, to have social impact, which is why we have uh, the for-profit uh, arm in, in, in Omidyar Network, and which is why we have a strong emphasis on technology. So almost every business that we support, whether it be for-profit or non-profit, is tech-led, uh, and tech-led as opposed to tech-enabled. Uh, so very strong emphasis. And we also believe that in a country like India today, the mobile phone has emerged as one of the most significant drivers of social impact. And think about it. Uh, today, with your mobile phone, you can get access to education. You can get access to financial services. You can get access to digital health. You can get access to jobs, uh, transportation, access to government services. So just the transformative power of that one mobile phone, access to which has significantly improved with declining device costs and declining data costs, uh, can actually have the power to, to, to pretty much transform India. And which is the reason, Suresh, we are unconventional in the sense that we go beyond uh, the traditionally understood impact populations and impact sectors because of the way we view this. 
Let's talk a little bit more about these traditional impact sectors. Many of your investments, at least in India, uh, Change.org, Scroll, and now recently you said the Ken, target urban India. A large part of the impact that I'm assuming that you would like to, uh, the, that you would like to see um, actualized is your impact on rural India. What are your plans in rural India and how do you propose to engage with that part of India? So in our minds, we do not actually make these distinctions okay. between rural and urban. But typically, what would happen in rural India is if you're looking at uh, rural populations at the base of the pyramid, that is where very often or most often markets do not function. And that is why we address that population mainly through our grants. So for example, we have organizations like the Foundation for Ecological Security, or in Orissa, land titling for slum dwellers, which was provided by flying drones to map out the slum settlements, etc. Those were all grant funded. However, we are now seeing business models, including in the media, which are targeted at rural populations, some of which are very interesting. So for example, we've supported a company called, uh, uh, an organization called Hakdarshak, which actually helps rural populations get a, an awareness of and access to different government welfare schemes. In media as well, you have organizations like Gao Connection or Khabar Lehria, which are targeting rural populations, and those would be organizations in principle of interest to us from an investment perspective. Rupa, you and your organization invest in news media around the world in different markets. The question is simple. Is India different from other markets, or are we similar in more ways than we are different? So, so you're right. Independent media is an important area of focus for us. Uh, globally, we have invested in about 43 different independent media organizations. And when I say independent media, I mean independent media, uh, fact-checking organizations, investigative journalism organizations, uh, and, and the like. Uh, so, to your, so therefore, we do have a range of experiences all over the world. What are the differences and what are the similarities? Uh, let's start with the differences first. So, depending on the country, you see all kinds of models, right? You see models where media are entirely controlled by the state. Uh, at the same time, you're seeing trends like uh, misinformation, the truth being devalued, facts being devalued, uh, and things like that. So th that is one kind of difference. The other kind of difference you see all over the world is the pace and uh, pace of digitization and what is happening in print media. In print media, you see two completely different trends. So in the West, you will see a decline in print media. So print media revenues, for example, over the last 15 years declined from something like $60 billion to $20 billion, and that is massive. Uh, on the other hand, in a country like India, print media still continues to grow and in the, has grown by something like 60% in the last 10 years. So that's a divergent trend. However, the trend of increasing shift to digital is something that is again common, although in degrees is different. But because in the West print is significantly on the decline and the move to digital has happened in a far more accelerated manner, you see those countries much more evolved than India as far as monetization of uh, digital media is concerned. So you will find many different forms of monetization uh, compared to India, whether it be 
paywalls, whether it be freemium models, subscriptions, crowdfunding, micropayments, that is payment for each article, merchandising, uh, different kinds, different methodologies, uh, or different uh, sources of income. I think uh, media is far more evolved in, uh, and progressed much more in other countries than it has in India. And I think it has to do, uh, underlying that is the two different trends that we talked about uh, in, 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 as far as the pace of digitization is concerned. Various studies have shown that uh, public trust in media, especially news media around the world, are probably at their historic lows in every single major country in the West and in India. Do you think that uh, independent media can buck this tide and restore faith in, in, in media and mainstream media? One of the reasons that we invest in independent media, because we believe the answer to that question is yes. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't be making these investments. Uh, uh, one of the first things that we look at uh, when we make an investment in a media organization is the integrity, professionalism, values, and, and what is really driving uh, the founders. And, and we will invest in, in those organizations which have a deep commitment uh, to, 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 to telling the story as it is, a deep commitment to being unbiased, uh, and, and, and a deep commitment to ensuring that quality standards are always kept very high. And we believe the more that happens, the greater is the likelihood of trust uh, being, uh, uh, you know, of, of the readers having, having trust in such enterprises. So, so yes, I think uh, because of the, the, the several forces at play today, uh, which have to do with technology, which have to do with social media, et cetera, you do see that erosion of trust. But we also see some of these as driving opportunities for new players to come in and start making a difference. And I would say that you know, in each one of these investments that we've made, even in India, for example, so whether it be Scroll, whether it be the Ken, whether it be News Laundry, whether it be the Daily, Daily Hunt, uh, you know, even in a short period of time, I would argue that these organizations have begun to have a significant impact. Surupa, why do you invest in news organizations? Is it your philanthropic heart or your ruthless venture capitalist brain? Which of the two is at play? Uh, you know, at at the core, I think is 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 the belief, is the fundamental belief in the importance of independent media for a healthy democracy. That is what has driven us to pick independent media as a sector for investment. Having done that. Uh, I think we carry out our evaluation and what are our expectations as far as return are, returns are concerned. I think the reality is that there is, and we invest with a wide range of potential returns. So for example, if the news organization or the media organization is a non-profit, then we are giving a grant. So there we are expecting no returns. On the other hand, because you're giving a grant, you write a check, the money goes out, right? You're not but getting. you have some expectation in exchange for that grant. It's not The expectation complete. is impact. Okay. So the expectation is impact. And you will measure that impact. And we will measure. So as impact investors, we are committed to measuring impact at every single one of our investments, whether it is for profit or non-profit. On the other hand, other end of the spectrum, you have media organizations that we invest in, which we believe have the potential to give you 
market returns on a risk-adjusted basis. And we have seen examples of that in the US, whether it is Vice, whether it is Vox, whether it is BuzzFeed. These are organizations which have gone on to become unicorns. So that is the other end. You also have a third category in between, which are organizations where you expect return of your capital, but sub-commercial returns. And we will invest in those as well, because we believe that many of these organizations may have a larger market impact. They may be creating a business model which is interesting for others to replicate. They may be creating interesting inf industry infrastructure, or they may be influencing policy reform. So the, sh the answer to your question is that there is a range of returns from zero to to, to the highest end of market returns and also sub-commercial returns in between. And if you look at our portfolio, you will find investments across the three. Isn't it confusing on an average day from a leadership perspective? No, it isn't because I think we have over, I, I guess, I mean, I've come, in, come into this when the organization has been about, was about seven, eight years into its journey. And over that time, I think there has been a lot of learning. So the clarity that you hear now about the fact that we invest the, across the returns continuum, I may not have been there a few years ago, but is the result of learning over the years. The next question I'm going to ask on behalf of any potential media entrepreneurs who are sitting in the audience today. With your investments in news and media in India, what specific returns are you looking for from your investments? So if you look at the uh, the the all the four investments that we've made in independent media in, or media related. So you have Daily Hunt, uh, we have Scroll, uh, we have News Laundry, and we have the Ken. I would say a good clue to this is to see who are the co-investors in, in these companies. So if you see Daily Hunt, Daily Hunt is a company where you have traditional VC investors as well. And you also have Chinese investors like Tautiao and things like that. So it's a reasonable to conclude from that 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 would be typical of an investment where you're expecting to make market returns. Whereas in the other investments, if you look at our co-investors, either we are the first institutional investor or we have other impact investors or, or, or angel investors. And there, I think, uh, because of the stage and the kind of organizations they are, I think we would be expecting uh, sub-commercial sub returns in the, in the others. And these investments that you make in news and media, how do they fit in with your larger mandate for citizen engagement how, and your other themes for investing? So I think if you look at our entire investment spectrum, it's pretty broad. So it's financial inclusion, education, digital identity, property rights, and governance and citizen engagement. Now, governance and citizen engagement, we think, again, we try to be in places, Suresh, where you don't see other funders willing to come in or there in, in great numbers. So these are areas which are where we believe we can be the most catalytic because we are not, we are not a large VC in the sense that we don't, uh, you know, we don't have multi-billion dollar funds uh, kind of thing. So, so we are looking to see where can we deploy our, our, our capital in a most catalytic manner. And the four areas that we've chosen in governance and citizen engagement are broadly, number one is independent media. 
Number two is fiscal governance related issues. So where is government money going? Can you follow the money and see where it's being spent, etc.? The third is open data. And the fourth is civic technology, which enables, this is technology which enables citizens to engage with government. You spoke about some of the other investors. You briefly alluded to that in your previous comment. How do you ensure at Omidyar that you and the other investors are exactly, are aligned in exactly the same way? And how do you avoid conflicts of interest? They want faster returns in a shorter period of time. You're willing to accept sub-market uh, returns on your capital. How do you ensure that this kind of friction doesn't occur? Actually, it's, it's, it's not as complex as it might seem. Because I think, uh, again, investors do a lot of work before they decide where to put their money. And therefore, in, depending on the kind of uh, organization you're seeing, and this is not just independent media, you will find those investors getting into a particular organization where they feel it, it's a match with their risk appetite and return expectation. So you would not really find a situation where you have a bunch of investors with different kinds of expectations in a company. Uh, or they would have done their homework, they would have done their analysis, you know, they, they, they would have, uh, and, and I, th the, I think the examples that I pointed out recently, just now of, uh, you know, look at our co-investors in Daily Hunt and look at our co-investors in the others, that itself tells you. You spoke about independent media, and a lot of media's advertise, uh, revenue model is based on advertising, let's not say dollars, advertising rupees in India. Can media truly be independent if it depends on advertising rupees? That's a great question, and it's, it's a larger question of conflict of interest, right? I would argue that at the highest level, you have conflict of interest in every business. And the fundamental conflict of interest comes in between quality and profits. You know, how much are you willing, to, where do you strike the balance between investing in high quality? Uh, because every dollar you put there takes away from your profit, right? So inherently, that's one example of a conflict which is there everywhere, not just in independent media. Secondly, there are certain industries where I would say conflicts are even more significant. So, so for example, if you take, an, take the audit business, right? The auditor is getting paid by the same company that they are auditing. So you would argue, say, what is their incentive? You know, but, but there are checks and balances that ensure this. So the point I'm making is that conflicts of interest are there in every business. Uh, not to expect them not to be there is unrealistic. The more important question is, how are you managing that conflict? And how you're managing that conflict can happen in several different ways. Number one, in your business model itself, which ensures that you're not overly dependent on one type of income. And within each type of income, your income stream, you're not dependent on one single customer or a few customers. So diversify, diversify, diversify is mantra number one in the business model to avoid that conflict of interest. There are also things you can do in the operating model uh, to avoid conflict of interest. And by that I mean uh, ensuring a separation between uh, the business development or the sales team and the editorial team, ensuring that the editor does not take business decisions. So ensuring that the editorial, the operations are conducted in a manner within the firm that the editorial is, is, is uh, separated. Uh, 
And the third way of ensuring that conflicts of in interests are managed is governance. Uh, so, you know, what are your what are your audits? What are your checks and balances? What kind of a board do you have in place? So it's a combination of these things, your business model, your operating model, and your governance structure, which helps you manage these conflicts. One of the guidelines that moderators were given uh, for, for the media rumble is not to engage in gossip and speculation, but I'm going to engage in just a little bit of gossip and speculation. So many years ago, uh, there was a show with um, imported supercars in Bombay, and one of those cars caught fire. And the next day, a leading newspaper carried a photograph and didn't name the brand of the car. And a rumor has it that a very, very sharp salesperson who was at the car festival called the car company and said, how much to drop the name of your car? Right? And apparently, the car company negotiated a staggering seven-figure number. So the news article wasn't fake news. It was entirely true. A supercar caught fire on a prominent road in Bombay during an exhibition show and just dropped the name of the car. Right? So it wasn't fake news. It was supercar. How do you get into the nuances of an organization like this and understand that the, sometimes the pursuit of profit and the pursuit of truthful reporting could be blatantly at uh, conflict of interest with each other or in a much more nuanced way like the example I said. How do you, how do you navigate that as an investor? No, that's a great question. And I might add that that is a question, again, which is not just unique to our media investments. That's a question that is there for every investor in every type of investment that they make, right? How do you ensure that you're following ethical business practices in whichever business you are in? Uh, and, 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 and I would say, in a way, for us, the job is a little easier. Because remember, I said we invest in early stage companies. So we are, first of all, we are investing at the stage when the company has a few people. Uh, you know, the founders are a, a group, a small group initially who are very much in charge, etc. So we're not talking typically of organizations which have grown to a stage which have, which have hundreds of thousands of people, right? So you're starting with a small team. And that is why the evaluation or the assessment of that team becomes very important. And that is where we spend the maximum amount of time. What is our assessment of their professionalism? What is their assessment of their integrity? What is their motivation for getting into the media business? I think our teams spend a lot of time evaluating this. There are reference checks. We do in-depth conversations with people who have worked with these people over a period of time. So I think you, if, you're, uh, if you are in the investment business, evaluation of the founding team is one of your core competencies. And that is something that you need to sharpen and refine. And that is what we bring into play when we, when we uh, at the time of making the investment, to kind of make our best judgment on the people we are investing behind. Having invested the money, what else can we do? I think governance, as I said, I think everywhere in all the firms that we invest in, we emphasize good governance, uh, strong audits, etc. We also actually encourage and actually get uh, independent editorial reviews done for our media investments. And these are done by third parties, sometimes even from people outside of India. And the purpose of these editorial reviews is to assess whether the, the quality of journalism is high and whether it is free from biases. So Rupa, if I came to you with a pitch and I was the founder of an independent media network, 
how would I be evaluated? What would you do to evaluate whether I'm worth investing in or not? So, so Other than my dashing good looks. Yes, I, I, I was going to say, and your murky past, we won't get into that, but, but uh, uh, just pulling your leg. I think, uh, uh, you know, two, three things. I, I, as I said, I think for us, the motivation is very important. So the why of it, you know, what is the vision? What is driving you to set up uh, uh, this digital only? I mean, and we are basically investors, I should have mentioned, in digital only outfits, right? So, uh, uh, so I think the motivation of the founder is very important. Number two, uh, what is the value proposition? How are you, Suresh, looking to differentiate, differentiate yourself from the 10 other digital media outfits out there? What is, is there a niche? Is there a different way of distribution you're looking at? Is a different kind of content? Uh, you know, so what, what exactly do you, do you, are you bringing in terms of a business model that is unique and differentiated? How have you thought about the problems? What are you anticipating? Uh, you know, what has been your track record of, of resilience, of dealing with problems? Because one thing you can rest assured in an early stage business, uh, you can plan as much as you want to, but nothing but will go as you as Nothing you, as is going plan. to go, yeah. So I think those are some of the kinds of things that we would assess, but I, I wouldn't say that it would be very different from any other uh, early stage startup entrepreneur. But at the end of the day, we are backing the power, the resilience, the tenacity, the creativity, the brilliance, the integrity, the innovativeness of the founder. That's what we are doing when we are making early stage investments. Founders are people, people have biases, people have political beliefs. One of the accusations that's thrown, I don't know fairly or unfairly, I won't get into that, to the founders and editors of independent media is that they're sort of turning into liberal fundamentalists that they're so liberal that they're refusing to listen to any point of view that they don't inherently agree with. Is that an area of concern, the rise of liberal fundamentalism? You know, I, I don't know whether we even think of it that way. What are, uh, I mean, our lens is uh, basically, is this going to be quality journalism, what is this going to be free of bias, which is based on our assessment and from time to time external reviews, right? Beyond that, quite honestly, it is we believe that it is not our job, it is not our concern in any way to get involved in and far less controlled editorial content. So I think the risk that we take as early stage investors is that you, you, you make the investment on a certain set of assumptions, but if things change, etc., that's one of the risks you take. And we hope that we will, over a long period of time, we will end up having far more good outcomes on this one than bad outcomes. And you know, that is, but, but, but going in, I think we do our best to do the diligence we can to satisfy, uh, satisfy ourselves that the intent really is uh, to be uh, professional, to be free of biases, to have high quality journalism. Tell us a little bit more about risk, Krupa. How do you evaluate political risk, execution risk, market risk, business model risks? Tell us a little bit about the perception and management of risk at the Omidia network. So, you know, at the highest level, I would say that because we are early stage investors, 
because we are in these unconventional areas, because we are dealing with the kind of technical, technological solutions which are at the frontier, uh, we are inherently uh, are willing to take high risk. So we have a high risk appetite, right? Uh, and that is true across the board, across all our investments. Where media investments are concerned, however, we do realize that there is an added dimension of risk. And very often, people ask us, like you, you did just now, you know, how do you think of political risk was one of the things that you mentioned. And when you say political risk, what I presume you are referring to is the fact that what happens if one of the companies or the companies that you invest in takes on or speaks too much truth to power, and then therefore you might face the, the brunt of quote unquote political vendetta. Essentially, that's what political risk you're referring to, I believe. To that, I would say uh, uh, a few things, right? How, I mean, the risks will be there. The question is, how do you think of them and how do you manage them? And I think the way we manage political risk is in a few ways. Number one, uh, we make sure that we adhere to the law of the land everywhere we invest in the world, right? And then we have very clear principles as far as our media investments are concerned, and we keep repeating them, we keep articulating them, and we follow them scrupulously. And what are these principles? Principle number one, despite the fact that you have all these risks, we believe there's a fundamental belief in the power and value of independent media, which is why we make these investments. Number two, we will back uh, founders who we believe are committed to the highest standards of integrity and professionalism. Number three, we have no involvement in and no control over editorial content in any way. Number four, we will emphasize good governance practices, including <clears throat> independent editorial reviews from time to time to ensure that the standards are being met. And I would say, <clears throat> you know, if you look at, put all of this together, and, and you see what our experiences have been uh, all over the world, by and large, I think these principles have, have worked well for us. And overall, we believe that the positive impact that our investees or investments have had all over the world have, have significantly uh, been ahead or overshadowed any risk that we might face on that account. And we think overall, from a risk-reward perspective, this has worked well for us and has worked well for the societies in which we work. So we spoke about risk. Let's talk about returns. Financial returns are relatively easy to measure. You know how much profits are made. You know how much your investment has increased in value. When you try to compute non-financial returns, let's say one of your investments in an house has deepened democracy in rural India. More people went to vote. More people are engaging with their elected representatives. How on earth can you measure something like that? Uh, do you have a method for, for instance, for measuring democratic dividends or governance dividends on your investments? So the kind of things you are referring to is, is what we call indirect impact or market impact. So there are the financial returns. Like you said, the easiest part to measure. 
and then there is the social impact. And how do we measure the impact? First is through standard metrics, right? Like just simply number of subscribers or number of customers. Secondly, you may look at number of if your number of customers, new new customers, first time uh, converts uh, conversion or first time digital media users, for example. Those would be other kinds of metric. Local language users, for example, if it's a local language. Because uh, that's but, measurable those fairly. That, those are all measurable. Beyond that, uh, you know. Going in as a part of your investment thesis, you might identify, pre-identify some of these markers. Uh, so, so, so for example, uh, if you're looking at, uh, uh, you know, changing the narrative on, say, I'm just making this up, right? Checking, changing the narrative on education in India because they are they are focusing on that, say the media, or changing the narrative on the judiciary in India. Then you would put a marker there upfront saying this is something that we will evaluate three years down the line. We may not have the metric clear upfront, but that is something you target for taking stock of three years down the line. And then you assess, uh, and then you say. And you do both a qualitative and a quantitative Absolutely. taking stock. I would imagine for something like Absolutely. changing the narrative. Absolutely. All right. So if I were in this audience and I caught Rupa Kudwa on her way out, there's no elevator here, but there is a staircase, and I had 90 seconds to make a pitch to you, either for a grant or for a for-profit business, how should I approach you? What should be my pitch to you? I think, I think if it's 90 seconds, I think it's the vision for change. You know, what is the vision for the bigger change or impact that you're looking to have? I think if you can communicate that, uh, and the power of that, I think that's what starts I will to have get piqued your interest, and that then that's what that's what gets us intrigued to have further conversations. And what happens next once I get you excited? I think what happens next to me as an entrepreneur? I think there is a, there's a, there's a process. So people come, make their firstly there's a series of discussions, uh, and then typically once the team that is doing the evaluation feels. Uh, that they have got a, a, a solid enough understanding of you and you, what you're planning to do. Uh, typically, you will come and make a presentation to what is called an investment committee. Uh, and then that's, that's a pretty intense, it's, a, it's about a two hour where you will present for an hour, there'll be an hour of Q&A. Uh, at the end of which, uh, you know, maybe we may identify certain additional areas for diligence, go back and do some additional work, go back to the committee a second time where you don't have to come where our team and we sit and have that discussion and then we communicate the decision. It's not a very long process, uh, but it is a very uh, intense a, process. a rigorous process. Yeah. Uh, at this point, I'm going to throw the uh, house open for questions. Anybody in the audience has questions? Want to make your 90-second pitch? Yeah, sorry. I am uh, Colonel Umang Kohli. I'm a serving officer of the Indian Army, but I am on sabbatical and pursuing journalism with Amity University. Uh, my question is that uh, sometimes uh, media does need to take a stand against the government in matters of foreign policy. Uh, they are generally expected by the government to toe the government line because otherwise they think that somehow the sovereignty is being affected, somehow they become anti-nationals or something like that. In such a scenario, when such a media house is being invested with dollars and it is coming from outside, do you see any problems in investment there or have you faced any government uh, restrictions or uh, the people whom you have funded have found it difficult to uh, 
uh, go through the red tape of the government? Thank you, Colonel. That's a good question. Yeah, so, a great question. foreign investment, Indian media house criticizing India's foreign policy. Yeah. What happens to you as an investor yeah. and where do you stand? Yeah. So, like I said, we have invested in 43 organizations in different parts of the world. And the answer to your, the short answer to your question is yes, we have faced those situations. And the most uh, recent situation was uh, in the case of Rappler, Maria Ressa, who you heard of, who, who was so powerful and so inspiring in three sessions yesterday. So Rappler is an example of uh, uh, exactly a similar example. We are investors in Rappler. So it was exactly the same situation that you highlighted. Uh, uh, but I think, like I said, as uh, you know, this is what is called political risk, and that was Suresh was asking, how do you deal with political risk? As I said, you know, our approach is we support Rappler, we support the work they are doing, we are investors in the company, we are not involved in editorial or editorial content, and across the world, across these 43 uh, investments, I would say on balance, our positive outcomes have been far, far higher than some of these risks that come up from time to time. Uh, good morning. I'm Kamal. I'm from The Economist Group. Um, so I, uh, you had mentioned value. So if you could just elaborate a little bit about that. What um, particularly do you look for? Um, and how does Omidyar Network um, navigate and interact with different worldviews uh, and probably even uh, political ideologies? I think uh, in independent media, since we are talking about that, what is really important for us is firstly, uh, integrity and professionalism. I think that is really, those are, those are key, you know. Beyond that, I also think given who we are as early stage investors, digital only investors, we are also looking to see what is unique about the business model. You know, what is it that you're trying to do as an entrepreneur that is unique that no one else has tried to do before? And therefore, what is the innovation that you're bringing to the market? Uh, I think so th very quickly, those are the three things that we look at. Uh, the second part of your question is what do you, what ideology do you have? I think, I think we are agnostic. I think all that we are looking for is, uh, you know, what are the principles on which the organization is going to be run? Is it high quality journalism uh, is, is what we are trying to assess. And that high quality is validated by a number of things, including independent uh, reviews, as I said. Beyond that, we really do not get into the content. And if you look across the world, we would have supported organizations with different kinds of philosophies, policies, ideologies, etc. So that part of it is, but of course, we're very clear about the fact that we do not promote uh, hate speech, or we would definitely be very strongly anti-hate speech, anti-fake news. In fact, we have created a hundred million dollar uh, fund now just to fight, uh, besides independent media, but just to fight fake news and hate speech. So things like that we would draw a very strong line at. But other than that, I would say we are pretty agnostic. Okay, we can get in two more questions. I saw, could you stand up in the back? We can't see you very clearly. Thanks. Yeah, hi, this is Dhananjay. I lead a private foundation's work in India. I also used to be an investment banker in my past life. That's why the question. Um, so every investor has at least an eye on the exit, right? What happens X years? And maybe your eye is a bit longer and you think a bit long term. Uh, how do you avoid that uh, eventually the companies that you invest in are bought out by some of the corporate uh, houses 
which is how uh, you know a lot of the large media houses have gone. Uh, have you thought about that? And, and, and if so, what are your mitigation measures there? Yeah. Good question. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. That's, a, that's an excellent question. So I think, yes, as an investor at the end of the day, so firstly, if it depends on the organization, right? If it's a non-profit organization, it's a different uh, story. If it's a for-profit organization where we've made an equity investment, sure, ultimately, as for-profit investors, our goal would be to exit. Uh, and, and again, there, so, we, so the answer is yes, we do think about exits and we are patient long-term investors. Uh, so we, you would find us in no hurry to exit, but what we would be very keen on doing is seeing that the organization becomes sustainable and gets to break even as early as possible. So I think our focus as far as ensuring the sustainability of the organization, there's a huge sense of urgency as far as that is concerned, but there's no particular hurry to exit, so to speak. Now, obviously when you come to an exit, there are uh, several things that we keep in mind. Uh, you know, you know it, it would depend on what kind of opportunities there are on the table. But by and large, I would, I would say that other things being equal, our preference always be, would be to exit in a manner that would ensure that the original purpose for which we invested, which is to create an independent organization, remains, right? And you could still sell to a strategic investor who may not be part of a corporate house, for example. So those could be preferred exits. Preferred exits could be to financial investors. Preferred exits could be IPOs. So they could be, those are the more preferred forms of exits. But certainly, if there is something, if there is some, an exit opportunity which we believe fundamentally goes against the, the basic principles behind why we invested, I very much doubt we would take that exit opportunity. Uh, Chris, here. Yeah, we'll just get your mic uh, so the rest of the hall can hear you. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Um, we're talking about reform media, new media, because we don't say it out loud, but because the old media is in such huge disrepute almost everywhere we don't believe our media in the states anymore really same here uh and around the world i wonder what is your theory basically of what went wrong with the old media is it interest is it is it capital too much capitalism to to uh is it what, what are the things that have corrupted yeah. the media we used to respect so so first first up i don't know whether I'm even qualified to answer the question, or I'm the biggest, but let me just take a stab on it. You know, I think we see interesting examples all over the world, right? So there are countries in which the state controls the media. There are countries in which you had established independent media organizations for the longest time. Uh, it's interesting to see that in some countries, the state sources are trusted more than the non-state sources. So I don't think there's a uniform, uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 it is universally true that all old media is not trusted. I think experiences, uh, experiences differ by country. There is no doubt, however, that uh, uh, one of the reasons contributing to the lack of trust generally uh, in institutions across the world has been the unintended consequence of technology. 
and I think the 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 like like yesterday's session, you know, uh, you know, free speech in some senses is also destroying free speech, right? So it's the unintended consequences of a technology which are having a large role to play in the erosion of trust in institutions generally, which go even beyond the media. And we actually have set up, therefore, a group uh, at Omidyar Network called Technology and Society Solutions Lab, which is precisely looking at these issues. What are the unintended consequences that technology is having all over the world? And how can we enable tech companies to rise to their highest and best, best purpose? So that's, that's, I think, an important issue for the rest of the century, I think. And other than that, I think it's a good subject for a PhD dissertation on why trust in traditional media has eroded. I'm afraid we're out of time. Our one hour is complete. Rupa Kudwa for Media. Thank you very much for being in conversation here at the Media Rumble. I hope all of you learned a bit. Are you going to be around for the rest of the day? For a little bit. Then I'm all right. So if you have elevator pitches or staircase pitches, she's around here for the rest of the day. Catch her in the corridors and make your pitch. Thank you very much. Thank you, Suresh. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs, and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.